So, as you might have seen, we're getting into the transfiguration of Christ, and um, it's one of those biblical accounts that, I don't know if you're like me, but I always thought was cool, but would just kind of read over and never really looked into, and okay, it's just this one-off thing that just happened with not really any other connection with the rest of Scripture. And so maybe I'm wrong for what I'm going to say next, but in my mind, I always pictured it like when Obi-Wan and Yoda appear in the Ewok village. It's like, oh, just these couple of glowing guys over here, and all right, on to the next thing, and maybe if you want to count Anakin, I guess. Um, but of course, it's infinitely more amazing than that, and we will get into to, to that. So sorry, that's just the visual in my head, and now you have it. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just forget what I said. But now that I have your attention, stay with me, because uh, we're going to look at two accounts this morning. We're going to jump into the text pretty quickly. So we're going to look at the transfiguration account itself and the conversation that happened on the way down from the mountain. And the symbolism is deep. So we're going to be looking, have your Bibles, we're going to be looking in the Old Testament quite a bit. Uh, We're going to be looking in the New Testament quite a bit. So we're going to be moving around because this is one of those passages that that writers call a a, a Janus passage where... um, it looks backward and it looks forward. And so there's a lot going on here. It's going to bring together really the whole counsel of God. So uh, there's a lot of profound theological concepts that we're going to get into. And no more Star Wars, I promise. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, open up Mark chapter 9. I'm going to start reading in verse 2 and read through verse 13. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are Some standing here, I guess I'm going to read from verse 1, who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power, because it's appropriate. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is Good that we are here, let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For you did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to Him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, He charged them to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man was risen from the dead. So they kept this matter to themselves questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Let's pray. How amazing are you, God? The mountains declare your majesty. You speak with thunder and lightning. The entire creation declares your name. We cannot fathom how glorious you are. We have no idea what the disciples saw. We can only imagine. But there will be one day we will see you in full glory and your splendor arrayed. 
the myriad of the heavenly host declaring your name, praising our God who is holy, 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 Lord Almighty, never changing, perfect in every way. And you, God, are the only God. And in the same way you would reveal yourself to the disciples on the mountain, you've revealed yourself through your word. You've revealed yourself in our hearts by bringing us to new life and making your home with us. You are a God manifest. A God who makes himself known, makes himself visible to those who have ears to hear and eyes to see. We praise you for this miraculous work of revelation. That we would never lose the awe and wonder of who you are and what you have done and are doing and will do. As we look at this text this morning, may we look through all of Scripture as it declares the name of Jesus Christ, and may we look forward to the day of His return when we see Him in full, consummate glory. May we be ready worshipers this day and forevermore. And it is in His name we pray. Amen. So as we've been doing, we've been recapping as we're going along because each of these accounts are building on one another. A few weeks ago, we looked at Peter's confession of the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and Jesus directly following that up with the cost, the cost for him that he must suffer and die, the cost for them that they must die to themselves and take up their cross and follow behind him and not be ashamed of him, and then the promise of his coming, a coming in full glory with the Father and the angels. And the coming of a kingdom in power. And now, this morning, we're going to look at the confirmation of that coming. We're going to look at the confirmation of that confession. This truly is Jesus the Christ. This truly is the Messiah, the anointed of God. So we're picking up after six days, or about a week later, from what we saw. This has been a long week. Think about this. If you're the disciples who are hearing this language if he's going to be killed and that you're going to have to take up a cross and that things are not going to be easy for you there's a lot to chew on over the last week we don't know what happened in those days and it really shouldn't matter but we we do know that that's not an easy conversation to forget and if you heard that for the first time you'd be consumed with it and i think the transfer the transfiguration is perfectly placed And so what Jesus does, picking up in verse 2, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. This is a beautiful picture of Jesus' discipleship model. There's kind of three layers to his disciples. You've got the crowd, the onlookers, the 72, the the larger outer ring of Jesus' disciples. They're the ones who follow him, have some knowledge of him, but don't know him intimately. Then you've got the twelve where he invests most of his time. They walk with him, they ate with him, they heard him. And then within the twelve, you've got the three that he took along when he was healing Jairus' child. He takes with him to the Garden of Gethsemane. 
there's a beautiful picture of discipleship because as we raise people up in the image of Christ, we can't do it all. Jesus didn't do it all. There were many who were on the outskirts, and some are only going to be on the outskirts, and they heard the words of Jesus and they followed along, but they didn't grow in deeper intimacy. And then there was the twelve. They had a depth and an, and an intimacy and an understanding of who he was that the rest didn't. And even within them, he took aside three. Peter, James, and John. Unlikely in many ways. Young fishermen. But when he invested in them, they got to see something that no one else saw. And right out of the gate, this is how we should view discipleship. You can't do it all. Many people feel like, or many pastors, I'll speak as a pastor, I know many pastors who drive themselves crazy, feeling like they have to do it all. They are not training in raising up others who can train as well. But if we look at Jesus' example, he didn't spend the same amount of time with everyone. He said, I'm going to invest in you, and I'm going to raise you up, and you are going to be these three Paul calls the pillars of the church. They are going to lead the early church, and the gospel is going to go out from their leadership And generation after generation after generation, discipleship happens one-on-one, deeply, intimately, with conviction and accountability. And Jesus starts this pattern for us. If anyone could have started a shallow megachurch, it would have been Jesus. But he did the complete opposite. Day after day, hour after hour with these three, and then they get to view what is truly unparalleled in all of Scripture and all of human history. So after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to the high mountain by themselves. Now before we go further, the symbolism starts here. A mountain. We've looked at the symbolism of mountains before. Mountains should make us think of majesty and power and closeness to God. Mountains are are where worship happens, where God appears to people. He makes himself known. And when you speak of a high mountain... It should make us think of being closer to God. High is everything that mountain means, but greater. Jesus was transfigured on a little hill that would be a bit underwhelming. He takes him up to a high mountain. And we're going to see comparisons to another mountain encounter and another mountain experience that Jonathan alluded to earlier. And so when he takes them up, he is transfigured before them. There's another place we need to stop. This word transfigured, it's from the Latin. It means to move across. So it's moving across one figure to another. But the Greek word here, we might recognize. Metamorpheo. From our word metamorphosis. To change forms. It is the essence in nature of one thing that changed from one form to another. They say the same form of Jesus from a human form into something different. He is changing forms. So what type of form is this? We're going to get super technical and nerdy, so forgive me. This is not a celestial form, meaning it comes purely from, from heaven outside of the earth. It's not a terrestrial form, which means it's not specifically of the earth. It's not an extraterrestrial form. It doesn't come from another land or another, uh, another place. It's a supra-terrestrial form. 
meaning it is of earth, but it is greater than earth. It is something that is unparalleled on earth. An amazing idea that, that we can't even fathom. How is something of earth yet not of earth? This is what Jesus is doing. He is changing into a form that is, that is recognizable, yet completely unlike anything anyone has ever seen. We're going to see him in his glory that he promised in verse 1. That some of you who are standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God as it has come with po- in power. You have not seen power until you've seen the Son of God glowing like the sun. But it also prefigures or looks forward to his coming in glory, which he promises in verse 38. That he will come, the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There is a power that we see in the kingdom of God and his humanity, and there's a glory of God the Father when heaven comes down to earth that is even greater than the transfiguration. It is to bring both of those images to mind. And so let's try and picture this. The gospel writers don't give us a lot of details, but what is here is helpful. So try and picture this with me. Verse 3. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white. This is vivid white, pure light. No darkness. And Matthew adds the detail that, his, that he shines like the sun. Luke adds the detail that his face is changed. It's Jesus, but it's not. It's brighter. It's, it's better. So bright. So white that no one on earth, no launderer on heaven, there is not enough tide to go around to make him this bright and glow this glorious. There is nothing compared to this that anyone has ever seen, ever. And Peter, James, and John get to take this in. They get to take in this supraterrestrial form of this earth, but greater than this earth. And it should make us think about someone else. Thanks for giving this away, Jonathan. Who earlier, Jonathan mentioned, goes up to a mountain. And he gets just a little glimpse of God's glory. And what happens to him? His face shines and everyone's shocked. Because just by looking on God's backside, his face glows. Imagine looking at God manifested in the flesh face to face. How bright must that be? And he does it all before them. This is their eyes to see. Earlier on, he criticized them. Do you not have eyes to see? He heals this blind man in two stages, giving us a picture of someone who can't see and then kind of sees blurry. Now they truly see him. Human eyes looking on Jesus' glorious form. And I do want us to turn to Exodus because this is helpful. I want, I want to set the stage to how amazing this is. Because the closest anyone ever come, has come to this is Moses in chapter 33. We're going to look at a few passages in Exodus, so keep your finger there. Exodus 33. After the golden calf, uh, he goes back up again. And he has an interesting request. So he, Moses is interceding for the people. 
And this is a very brazen request. And I, I, I love Moses' boldness here. Verse 18 of Exodus 33. Moses said, please show me your glory. If you get one thing to ask for, ask for that. Show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I'm just going to make my good nature pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name. Think about that for a moment. How amazing it is that it is an honor just to hear God speak his own name. I will bless you by speaking my name before you. The Lord. Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. This is what is so different about the transfiguration. Because Moses, the man who is closest to God in all of Israel, cannot see God's face or he will die. But Jesus takes Peter, James, and John and looks them in the eye in his glory. Think he's doing something better in the new covenant? He goes on, and the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And when my glory passes, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. Find a hole over there and hide yourself, because I don't want you to die. That's how glorious I am. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. God knows how glorious he is and how much concern he has for Moses. I, I love this. I w- maybe I'm going to preach on this one day. But I love how he's like, I'm going to hide you with, with my hand. In case you get tempted to peek at my face, I'm going to cover you with my hand so you don't die. Then I will take away my hand at the appropriate time after I pass by, and you shall see my back. That was the best man could hope for, and it was incredible to see God's backside as he's walking by. Peter, James, and John get to see God's glory face to face. Let that sink in. They needed to know him rightly, confess him as the Christ, but they also needed to see him rightly. This is not just any ordinary king who's come, this is the glory of God in the flesh. They needed to have these two things together. This is the confirmation of Peter's confession. And there's further confirmation that comes along with it. Look at verse 4. I've got to move a little faster. We'll never make it through this thing. Uh, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Two prophets that are very significant in the Old Testament. One associated with the law. He, as we just saw, was on Mount Sinai with God's glory. Moses, the other one, Elijah, the greatest of all the prophets in his power, calling down chariots of fire. He destroyed or defeated by the power of God all the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. The law and the prophets saw their fullness on two mountains. Both of them looking forward to the one who'd come after them. We don't have time to get into it this morning, but Jewish apocalyptic literature would predict that both of them must come back before the Messiah would come. Moses and Elijah should return before the Messiah comes. 
So the first thing we're going to see here is there's, it, there, there's consistency in the history of God's people. Moses to Elijah to Christ, they all come together in this one location. And there's a unity there as well. That they get to talk with him. Luke adds the detail that they're talking about his exodus. It's the literal word. They're talking about his exodus. There's a parallel here. They are talking with Jesus about an exodus. What do we know about the exodus? There's a sacrifice given for sins. And then they're And then God's people are led out of slavery into freedom and are made into a new nation. Jesus is heading to his exodus. A sacrifice given for sins, God's people led into freedom. And a new nation created in the wilderness. There's an exact parallel to what is going on here, to what was going on several thousand years before when God created his nation the first time. the biological Israel. This time, in a new nation, spiritual Israel, God is doing something very similar. And so this is what's going on. This is the transfiguration. This is this amazing sight. Then enter Peter. Verse 5. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, teacher, master, same word, it is good that we are here. Yeah? You think so? Thanks, Captain Obvious. It's good that we are here. The, the most underwhelming statement of the entire book, it's a good thing that we're here. <laughs> From confessing to rebuking, now he's offering to make tents. Peter is always right there. Peter is always front and center. I've got an idea for you, Jesus. Here's what we should do. Let's make three tents, which is a very Jewish thing to, to, to suggest. Uh, we know that the Feast of Booths was coming up. These are wilderness shelters that they, they, they had in the wilderness, and they were temporary. And every year in, in the Feast of Booths, uh, Sukkot in, in, the, in the Hebrew, they would, they'll, they'll sit for a week in these, these shelters. So Peter's doing a very Jewish thing right here. And maybe he thinks that they'll dwell there, they'll hang out there for a while, and it'll be uh, Moses, Elijah, and, and Jesus. And there, there's... There's some, you know, there's, there's something good there, but he's missing the point. Who's coming together here? The first prophet, Moses, the most powerful prophet who didn't die, who went directly to heaven, Eliza, because God was so pleased with him, and then the final prophet. But Peter makes the grave mistake of assuming that they are all equal. That, oh, just three tenths. Because up to this point, Jesus looks glorious, but so do Moses and Elijah. Peter's thinking that, okay, this guy's, this guy's it. He's, he's the one. He's just like Moses and Elijah. Not quite. We'll get there in a moment. Verse 6. I love this. Every time I read this, I crack up laughing. That was hard when I read this earlier to not laugh. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. I love Peter and the Peters out there, the nervous talkers who like, I don't know what to say, so I'm going to say something. Take a lesson from Peter. You don't always have to say something. Because I love you, I will tell you this. It's okay to be quiet. It's okay not to say anything. Because Peter right here, I don't know what to say, so let's make some tents. Oh, Peter. Be slow to speak, Peter. 
Good lesson for many of you. Be slow to speak. When you're terrified, sometimes it's good to think before you speak. But he's, he asks a question, and he gets an answer. And not the answer that he's expecting. Verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of heaven. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus didn't have to respond. The voice of the Father in a cloud that overshadowed them responded. Now the symbolism continues here. This should bring to mind more of what we've seen in Israel's first exodus. What does the cloud represent? Matthew says that it's a bright cloud. Does this sound familiar? If you still have your finger in Exodus, I want you to look at Exodus 19. Exodus 19 is the chapter before Exodus 20 where they get the Ten Commandments. As Moses is going up to the mountain, this is the scene. This is what a cloud represented to Israel. So this is Exodus 16 or 19, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took the stand at the, front, at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai, the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. The last time someone goes up to meet God, this is what it looked like. So don't think lightly of the transfiguration. Just because there's no thunder and trumpets don't, doesn't mean that it's not as terrifying and it's not as glorious. This Shekinah cloud, the, the, the glory cloud as, as the Jews call it, was their pace as they went through the wilderness. It was God's presence who told them when to stop and when to go, when to rest and when to move. Look at the last verses of Exodus, chapter 40, verse 34. Look at the association here of the cloud of God. God's very presence in His tabernacle. The irony here is when Peter is asking to make tents, tabernacles. God's cloud dwells in His tabernacle, His dwelling. Exodus 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Again, Moses is limited. In the Old Covenant, as we've been looking at in Hebrews, there is a separation between the holy and the most holy, the holy of holies. No one can enter in. No one can come close. Throughout all their journeys, wherever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. The symbolism remains the same. The high mountaintop, the glorious cloud, 
God is showing everything that Israel looked to before, now I place on my son. This is everything that is happening right now. God's presence and glory. One more unique Greek word here. And it overshadowed them. This is used one other time. Luke 1.35. It'll be up on the screen. Just, we can look at this quickly. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child, will be born, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The same overshadowing that happened in the Old Testament is God's glory cloud covered His people, covers Mary before she gives birth. Now this cloud again is over the sun. God, the sun, has been there all along. The glory cloud follows him along. When he leads his people in the wilderness, when he becomes man in the flesh, and when he stands in his glory in front of the disciples, God's cloud of glory and power remains with him. Anybody else right now, like head about to explode? This was my, my, my week this week. I'll be honest, I had not studied the transfiguration in this depth. And then I start looking at all this. I'm like, man, I've been missing out. Amen. This is the scene. This cloud that overshadows them, verse 7. No, we're not in verse 7. We're way for, uh, Yeah, we are. Sorry, I got going. I forgot where I was. Um, this is my beloved son. The confirmation of his sonship, his approval. This is my beloved son. We should, this language should sound familiar, just like his baptism. His, the, the baptism of Jesus was for Jesus' benefit. You are my beloved son. You may now begin your ministry. I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. This is for their benefit. This is my beloved son. Speaking in the third person now, addressing the disciples. And Matthew says that they fell on their faces, as you should. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So this sets him above Moses and Elijah. This sets the precedent of his very words being Scripture. Or all I can hear is, Peter, shut up. You are standing in front of my son. Listen to him. Stop blathering on about what you can do. You are in front of the living God. His words should make us think of something else that Moses prophesied about. They're standing in front of Moses. Deuteronomy 18. We're not going to turn there for sake of time, but look at 15 through 18 if you want to look at it later. I will raise up from you a man like you from among your brothers. It is him that you shall listen to. When he speaks, it will be as my very words. Follow him. This is that prophet that Moses prophesied about. Moses is there to confirm this message. Listen to him. God the Father speaks the same words that he prophesied in Moses several thousand years before. Those who have ears to hear. Hear and see what is going on here. No wonder 
Mark, when he records this, has so many great details. As we've talked about before, Mark being a disciple of Peter would have heard Peter talk about these things. We read this earlier, but I want us to revisit it. There's a reason we call this, I call this sermon the, majest, or the mountaintop majesty. Because Peter, twice when he recounts this, talks about the majesty. Decades later, this is still stuck in his head, how majestic this is. 2 Peter 1. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Decades later, Peter is still telling this story. For when, we, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. We can have confidence in the word of God because it comes from God. But we have eyewitnesses who were there, who did not stop telling until their dying day. Verse 19, which is not on the screen, but if you have it open, look. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. Moses was a prophet before him. It is a good thing. Moses confirmed that there would be one to come later. We have it more fully confirmed because we saw the Son of Man in His glory on which you will do well to pay attention. You should be paying attention this morning. As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. This is a call to regeneration. This is a call to go from darkness to light. The very light of the world himself who shines like the sun. This is Peter's prayer for the church that his light would shine in your hearts. Listen to the prophetic word. This is how people are transformed. The proclamation of the gospel by looking on the light of the world. By seeing the one that is glorified before Peter, James, and John who they proclaim to their dying day. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Now it is fitting that Jesus, that the disciples only see and only cling to Jesus. Moses and Elijah were with him, but they are not equal to him. They are now removed. They're here to confirm, but they will not remain. He remains. He will be with you to the cross. And from resurrection, He will be with you in glory to the end of the age. This is intentional. They're to see Jesus only, remove all distractions. Now that you've gotten the full picture, all the way through the prophetic witness of the Old Testament to my Son, look at Him only. And so as we move on to this conversation, which will move a little quicker than we did in the, in the transfiguration. Why this? Why now? Like I said earlier, I think this is perfectly placed. Because a week ago, they declared Jesus is the Christ. And they found out about his, 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 his suffering and the high cost to them. If any of us are honest, if we hear, yeah, we, you're, you're the Christ, we're going to follow you. And then you hear, I'm going to die and you're going to carry a cross. 
that'd be a very fearful week. This is what it's going to cost to follow Jesus? This is what he's asking of me? He gives them just enough time to stew on it. And then a week later, addresses their fears so that their resolve is strengthened. Oh, this is who I'm following. If you see the Son of God appear in glory, it makes a cross seem like nothing. It makes denying yourself seem like nothing. And they can encourage the other disciples on the way to Jerusalem. They can encourage the other disciples when they see Him on the cross. When He rises from the dead, they can confirm that He predicted this and told us and showed us His glory when He walks through walls and appears in the room in His glorified body. We knew this would happen. He, he showed us. The image was to stick in their mind as He approaches His death. And they begin to understand the King in His kingdom, the kingdom of God as it should be. But I also think this is appropriate, as we've seen all of these parallels so far, that this mountaintop experience of the one who fulfills the law is like the one who received the law. The one who received the law in the old covenant in the presence of God, now the one who fulfills the law, is the presence of God to issue and inaugurate a new covenant. This is a beautiful picture to bring God's whole plan of redemption together. Anybody with me? Hope so. Verse 9, now there's a conversation on the way down from the mountain, and Jesus calls them to secrecy again, and they were coming down the mountain, and he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. He must be revealed, but not until after the resurrection. Everything must come to pass. The Father's plan must be fulfilled, because only after the resurrection will all this be clear. Only then do you tell and tell everybody and keep telling the way Peter did. But for a time, these things must come to pass. But look at the language he uses here. It's important. He charged them to tell no one what he had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Jesus' favorite title for himself. We've looked at this several times. I'm not going to go there, but Daniel 7. The Son of Man. This is when Jesus embodies the Son of Man who rises in glory, standing before the Ancient of Days, shining like the sun, given all power, all glory, all dominion forever. When He rises, He is truly the Son of Man. In His glorious humanity, then you can tell of My transfiguration. Then it will all become clear. But we've got to be honest. If we were there, if we were them, it's so easy to be confident in hindsight. But if we were Peter, James, and John, this would be a tough pill to swallow. They're still debating amongst themselves, verse 10, so they kept the matter to themselves and questioned what the rising from the dead might mean. I mean, he told them plainly in the last chapter. I mean, we looked at verse 31. He said, I will be killed and rise again. But remember, up to this point, Jesus had spoken in parables. Is this another parable? Is he speaking figuratively? Is he referring to something else here? Is this a literal death? I can, we can all imagine the conversations. What exactly did that mean? It's like when I talk to a lot of the students who are like, what is the nature of Christ? It's kind of like the conversation that these disciples were having. Things that they're way above their pay grade that they could not even understand. 
but we do it. We want to understand, and, and, and so we won't fault them in that. But this is going to be a regular theme in the rest of the gospel, death and resurrection. The suffering of the suffering servant will be a primary fixture in Jesus' teaching. And so they're discussing that, and they've got to say something. They've got to ask for some kind of clarification, and they ask, if you're reading this for the first time, this might be a strange question. And they ask him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? So they're confused about the timing of all this, because Elijah's supposed to come first, right? But you're here, and we just saw Elijah. So Jesus is going to bring all of this together. Verse 12, you are right. Basically, he says to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. Let's take a moment and look at this. Elijah does come first to restore all things, to restore Israel, true Israel. The beginning of the restoration of all of creation begins with Israel. The scribes got it right for once. Mark, in the beginning of the gospel, quotes Malachi 3 and quotes Isaiah 40. If you have your Bibles, turn to Malachi. It's the last book in the Old Testament. So if you're in Mark, go to Matthew to your left and then go to Malachi. You should get there quickly. Mark quotes this. We want to look at it in its full form in Malachi 3. Elijah is supposed to come first. Yes. Behold, I send my messenger, Malachi 3.1, and he will prepare the way before me. This is God speaking here. Same thing Mark quotes. Someone came in this fulfillment. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come into his temple. Someone comes, prepares the way for the Lord. We know this to be John the Baptist. He will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. He's coming to prepare the way for the Lord, prepare the way for a new covenant. should bring all this stuff we've been studying in Hebrews together. Quickly, and it'll be up on the screen, he also quotes Isaiah 40. Mark does. Speaking of Elijah, speaking of John the Baptist who would come, a voice who cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in a desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, and uneven ground shall become level. In the rough places, a plain basically, will, they will remove barriers from people believing. But look what we see here in verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The one who prepares the way, prepares the way, prepares the way for the glory of God to be revealed. And most importantly, I forgot to tell you to keep your finger in Malachi. The last two verses in Malachi. Very last verses of the English New Testament. Behold, verse 5 of chapter 4 in Malachi, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day in the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Sound like someone's ministry? What was John the Baptist famous for? Repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe, turning the hearts of fathers and sons to the Lord, if not against each other, Jesus who came to bring the sword. All of this fulfillment, Elijah has come. You're right, you've got that, but don't stop there. Don't forget about the suffering servant. Don't forget about Isaiah 53. Don't forget that he was pierced 
for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. By His stripes we are healed. By Him, on Him, He laid the iniquity of us all. Yes, Elijah's going to come. Elijah's preparing the way for the Lord for this new covenant. But Jesus asked this question, and how is it written of the Son of Man that He should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? You know the prophecies. Don't forget the suffering part. They always like to try to skirt around the suffering part. That must happen. Glory must come through suffering. Jesus pulls all this together in Luke 24. I love Luke 24. I've told many of you, if I could transport any place, anytime, I want to be on the road to Emmaus, where Jesus re- reveals himself all through the Old Testament. Luke 24, verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? I'm beginning with Moses and all the prophets. See how this comes together. Moses and all the prophets. Elijah being the great and powerful one of them, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This must happen. I must suffer and go to glory. And if you don't believe me, I've been saying it all along. I'm going to show you everything in Moses and all the prophets. And so now in front of the disciples, they've had this visual representation of the prophets, Moses and Elijah, and then the fullness of them in Jesus. Elijah has come, verse 13, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Matthew adds the detail, now they understand that he was speaking about John the Baptist. Elijah has come. So what's the implication for them? Elijah's supposed to come first, right? He has come. It's John the Baptist. Oh, now light bulbs should begin to come. You are witnesses of this. If Elijah comes to restore all things, you are in the age of restoration. The promised day of the Lord, the new covenant. I will restore the throne of David. I'm beginning to do that now. This is when the restoration begins. My glory that you just saw confirms that the Father is restoring all things through me. A new covenant that is the beginning of the end. The final age. You are now in it. Because Elijah has come. The day of the Lord is now. So that's incredible for them. But what does that mean for us? So there are many parallels we can look for look at. I'm going to limit myself to just two. Um, First one. We, like the disciples, do not follow Jesus because of our great understanding or great ability. Praise God for that. Just like the disciples were stumbling and bumbling their way through the glory of God standing in front of them, He is patient and merciful with us. And just like the disciples who would not know God if he had not come down to earth and revealed himself to them, we are no different. We would not know God if God did not know us first. If God did not condescend his glory and open our blind eyes and our deaf ears and our dead hearts. And like the disciples, our understanding of the Son is something impossible to grasp. God in the flesh, how does that work? Suffering for the forgiveness, the, the atonement of sins, how does that work? In glory is God and man, how does that work? 
we were standing in our own strength, we'd be as confused as Peter, James, and John. But praise be to God that He reveals this to us. He opens it up that we can understand this. What's even more incredible is that He went through all that for us. That we might be with Him and might be like Him. We as Christians look forward to glorification. We in Christians look forward to taking on the divine nature, being in radiant glory. Not as Jesus, but like Jesus. One day we will be like Him. He has made that known to us, and He has promised that to us. This is a great encouragement for the body. My second point in application, but what do we do until then? Because this is great. I love the idea of glory. I'm going to be with Jesus. Everything's going to be okay. I'm just going to sit here and twiddle my thumbs until then. Well, we know we can't do that. What's worth mentioning is the word for transfiguration used in Matthew and Mark is only used in two other places. Both of those apply to believers. Both of those speak of believers. The metamorpheo that Jesus did transforming from one form, the same essence from one form to another is used first in 2 Corinthians 3.18. on the screen there you go and we all with unveiled face look at the language coming together transfiguration language here unveiled face beholding the glory of the lord are being transformed metamorpho there into the same image from one degree of glory to another think about that the same word that is used of jesus transfigured on the mountain is used of us unveiled face beholding the glory of god being transformed into that image from one degree of glory to another If you are in Christ Jesus, this is who you are. If you are not in Christ Jesus, this is what you lack. And it makes all the difference in the world. You can leave it up there, John. We are being transfigured as these new creatures. New creations in Christ by the Spirit. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You see the perfect working of the Trinity here. God the Father confirming the Son. The Son's action bringing us into glory. And the Spirit coming to us and making us whole. This is the identity of the believer. Looking at God face to face. Moses hid behind a rock. You can look at God with an unveiled face. Do you ever think about that? I hope that's not lost on you. And you grow from one degree to another, this picture of sanctification and growing closer in glory. How do we do that? How does that work? Glad you asked. Romans 12, 2. Paul uses the word again. We should know this verse. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, metamorpho again, by the renewal of your mind. This 2 Corinthians 3, this is who you are in Christ. Romans 12, 2, this is what you do in Christ. Don't be conformed to this world. Remember Jesus transfigured before you. He is supraterrestrial. He's above this world. You are to be apart from this world. And how do we do that? By the renewal of our minds. 
Setting our minds on the things of Christ, the things above. Taking our thoughts captive that we may be formed into His image. New minds who are given discernment. Because if you renew your mind, you can test and discern the will of God. People ask all the time, what is God's will for my life? Are you renewing your mind? It's impossible to tell God's will for your life if you are not in His Word. If you are not focusing on the things of God. If you are only trusting in your own understanding. But once you do, you realize that God's will for your life is your sanctification. That's what Paul also tells us. He wants you to grow, to grow into His glory. So it doesn't matter where you go to work, where you go to school, what you do. Because you are in Christ and you are glowing in glory. Amen. And if you do that, you renew your mind, you discern the will of God, then you will grow in what is good and what is acceptable and what is perfect. This is your calling in Christ. You behold God with unveiled face. Renew your mind. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed into the image of Christ. Paul tells us here that we are growing into what we are in Christ. Our identity is becoming more and more real as we are being transformed into His glory. That is what the transfiguration teaches those in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I don't even know what to say. So I'm going to learn from Peter and I'm going to say very little. Lord, I pray that your people would meditate on these words. That they would be encouraged, that they'd be challenged, that they'd be convicted. That they would see the Son of Man rightly. As you prophesied through your servant Daniel, behold the clouds of heaven. Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus Christ is his name. Amen.